Well, good morning to you. So glad to see you in the house of the Lord. Well, it's most fitting that since we're beginning a new series on prayer, let's start with prayer. Father, as we come together, we are very conscious of who we are and who you are. With our heads bowed and our hearts as well, we understand that we are in the presence of majesty. We are in the presence of of the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And Father, as we come to you, we know that we're not people of great eloquence. And sometimes, Father, we struggle with exactly what we want to say to you in terms of adoration and also petitions. And Lord, we thank you that your spirit stands ready to make intercession for us in these moments. And so, Lord, very simply put, we are a needy people who need this morning to meet with our God. We need to hear from you, Lord. We pray that, Father, your spirit would be able to speak freely to us from your word. And that, Father, our hearts would be most open, most receptive to what you have to say to us. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your son who died on the cross for us. And thank you for your love and care for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're beginning a new series on prayer. And so um, I don't think we have to go too far to understand the need for prayer. Uh, If there was ever a time that prayer was needed, it is now. Uh, For example, globally, the world is in crisis in how many different ways? Well, you name it, it is. (laughs) For example, uh, climatically, we are in uh, deep trouble because of global warming. Financially, we are in trouble because the global economies are all attached together. And so when something happens to one economy, it it affects everybody else. And so we have seen that happen right before our eyes. Politically, borders are being erased by conflicts and by wars. Uh, I would really feel sorry for the person who has to draw maps because the minute you draw a line, you find out that the line has been changed because of some conflict that is going on. Nationally, governments the world over are doing their very best to address change that is coming at them at light speed. How many times have you seen politicians get up and make a statement boldly, courageously, only an hour later having to retract it on their Twitter or their Facebook or something like that because the world has changed. Also, locally, God has led GBC into a mighty challenge with the construction of a new structure that will reach not only the present local community with the gospel, but the future community sprouting out all over Singapore. And so then we're being pressed on all sides. And individually, We face all kinds of challenges in our workplace, our schools, in our homes, and in our relationships. In other words, some total, there is never a lack of something to pray for, right? Right. Because something is happening somewhere, sometime, that needs our prayers. So the need of prayer is quite obvious. But also, the Bible goes one step further because it says that there's the importance of prayer. 
And these are just some of the things that we will learn in these series of messages. But for now, let me just share with you some of the verses that point out the importance of prayer. For example, the Bible sets the standard and tells us to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. It also, the Bible also says in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. How many of us have, because of our lack of prayer, we've, we've lost the energy, we've lost the passion, we've somehow lost our way. The disciples themselves asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. In Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Now, if it wasn't important, why were the disciples asking Jesus to teach them? If it wasn't important, why was it that Jesus was saying, you better pray and not lose heart? Why, if it wasn't important, why is it that Paul says, pray without ceasing? It's because prayer is important. So it's not only needful, but it's also of great significance. It is of great importance to all of us. So therefore, there is much to be learned about prayer and in prayer as we study some of the significant prayers prayed by Paul. And some of the questions that we will find and some of the answers we will find to them are these. Who should pray? Why should we pray? What should we be praying for? These are just a few of the questions, and hopefully they will be answered in our time together in the next few Sundays. And so, please, our prayer is that you will join us through the whole month of August as we prepare ourselves, our church, and our beloved city for what God has in store for us now and in the future. And so, prayer is important. And so the first prayer that we want to dis, uh, study is this one found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. Now, what we, uh, we, uh, it's helpful that we figure out what we need to know, what we need to know. It helps to understand the broader context of the epistle in order so that we can make sense of the smaller portions of it, such as this prayer by Paul. And so what do we understand about the the Thessalonians? What do we know about them? Well, first of all, the believers at the church of Thessalonica were discouraged by ongoing persecutions and trials. How many of you in this room get discouraged by all of the trials and tribulations that you go through? Okay, all of us do. And so the Thessalonians were no different. They were discouraged. They were downtrodden. Secondly, they were deceived by false teachers about especially about the teaching of Christ's return. And so all of this funny business was going on and they couldn't make sense of it. And it was messing up their lives. So they were discouraged. They were deceived. But lastly, they were disobedient to the things of God. As much as Paul loved this church and as much as he commended this church, they had their problems. They had their issues. They had times when they strayed away from the things of God. And so they were disobedient. Now, God raises up Paul and Paul comes into all of this. And what does he hope to do? The Apostle Paul writes to comfort, correct and confront them in these areas. In this section that we're going to be talking about, Paul wants to and is about to comfort those discouraged by persecution and tough times. And how does he do this? 
Well, he does this by comforting them with encouragements, with exhortations or teachings, and with prayer. And so that's where we're headed this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. If you don't have a Bible, just look at the screen and these verses will come forward. Now, when I entitled this, path, this message, you probably were a little bit intrigued. It says, when, it says, when the going gets tough, the tough, and then there's a blank. There's a blank. If you were to say this in Dallas, Texas, they would say, when the going gets tough, the tough go shopping. That, that's, that's how Dallasites, that's how they handle their issues. And they would say, we would go shopping. I think in Singapore, this is slightly different. When the going gets tough, the tough go eat. Right? That's our answer to everything as Singaporeans. Get a good meal. Hey, put your feet up. Get a good rest. And everything will be good. Everything will be fine. Okay? But when we come to the scriptures, we find that it's quite different. It's quite different. And so how different is it? Well, we're going to see in a minute. So when the going gets tough, the tough, in verses 3 to 4, keep progressing. They keep progressing. Verses 3 and 4. It says, Amazingly, the believers at Thessalonica were growing under the blazing heat of persecution and trials. Now, this is truly amazing because normally you would think when there are difficulties that people shrink. People go backwards, that people actually regress, if you will. And so that's our normal thinking. When the pressure's on, then the people crumble, all right? That's our normal understanding. But when you come to the Thessalonians, guess what? They turned around, and they were growing. They were progressing in their faith. Well, what were they progressing on? Well, Paul points three of these out for us in verses 3 to 4. So, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Verse four, therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of your persecutions and afflictions, which you endure. Did you see those three things? The first one is, he says, we ought to give thanks for you. Your faith is greatly enlarged. Now, that's a funny way of saying it, actually. But literally, that word means to grow exceedingly, to grow exceedingly. Now, I'm, I'm getting ready to go back to the United States, and I'll see my family, and I'll get to see some of my teenage grandchildren. And so when I go up to them, I will be really shocked to see how much they have grown. All right. Uh, some of them are approaching six feet already, and they're just in the you know ninth and tenth grade. And so when I see them, I'll walk up to them. Wow, how you have grown exceedingly. That's the kind of the feeling that Paul has. He says, I look at your faith. My, how you've grown in your faith. That's the kind of feeling that he gets. Now, understand that Paul prayed for this back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. So God was answering his prayers. He says, I hope that you will grow in your faith. And sure enough, that's what happened. Now, here's a question for you. How do you measure if you're growing in your faith? In your faith and trust in God. 
Now, that's a tough question, isn't it? Because some of us would measure that and say, well, I go to church more often than Christmas and Easter, so my faith must be growing. You know, so we think to ourselves, we count up the number of attendants and we say our faith is growing. Well, one of the best definitions that I saw was, uh, came out of an article I was reading. And this person measured how, we, how our faith is growing by these two standards. Here's the first one. The first one is you can say that your faith is growing when you trust the Lord more consistently. More consistently. You know, sometimes our faith, we're very happy and we're very content with what? Oh, I really trusted God through this thing. And then, you know, things get a little easier and then we don't trust God so much. Okay. We trust God consistently, consistently trust him. The next one, the next factor is we know our faith is growing when we trust the Lord more extensively, extensively. What do you mean by that? What we mean by that is that you are trusting the Lord in more and more areas of your life, of your life. Okay? And so you can say, for example, you can say, how about your career? You might say to yourself, well, I'm the master of my own ship. I'm going to dictate what happens in my career. I'm going to take this course. I'm going to upgrade myself. I'm going to be nice to bosses I don't like. And I'm going to just take off in my career. And we say to ourselves, but what about God? Does God have anything to say about our careers? Does God have any influence on our careers? Well, certainly he does. But we don't want to give that over to him because we want it all to ourselves. So we don't trust God in the area of our careers. We haven't turned that area over to him. But we can say our faith has grown If we have an area in our life that we kept to ourselves, but we are now giving to him. We say, wow, last year was really tough. But this year has been, I've just learned that I have to give it over to God. I have to give more areas over to him. I have to give my marriage over to him. I have to give my career over to him. I have to give my education over to him. When that happens, your faith begins to grow. And please understand that this idea of growing your faith consistently and extensively is a lifelong process. It's not something that stops all of a sudden. You can't wake up one day and say, well, I've been a Christian for, you know, X number of years. I know all there is to know. I've trusted God for everything and anything. As soon as you say that, God will throw a situation past you and he'll say, are you going to trust me? Are you going to trust me? You see, it's a life long process enlarging our faith is a high priority target in our lives and all of for all of our lives now next what's the next thing he noticed the next thing paul noticed is found in verse three it says love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater now paul again prayed for this back in first thessalonians chapter three verse 12 and guess what God was answering his prayers because he saw that the love between the Christians at the church of Thessalonica was growing even more. Well, how was it growing? Well, one way it was growing was that because of the false teaching, there were some people who believed that Christ's return was imminent, that it was immediate, that it was going to happen. 
All right. Like maybe in the next few minutes kind of thing. And so what they decided to do is quit their jobs. <laughs> and so what did they do? Well, they go off and they say to themselves, I'm going to go off and get me a good cup of tea. I'm going to sit on my balcony on my HDB. I'm going to put my feet up and I'm waiting for Jesus to come. Hallelujah. Right. Well, the problem with that was because they quit their job. They had no way of taking care of themselves. And so what happened is other believers had to pick up the slack and help them. But out of that, there was this increased love for one another that was evident. And so Paul commends them for that. And they would have to do this until Paul was able to straighten out the erroneous teaching and get things all back on track. So the first thing was your faith has grown. Second thing, your love has grown. What else? Verse 4, your perseverance and faith in the midst of your persecutions and afflictions, which you endure. Wow. Your ability to endure under persecution and afflictions. The word afflictions actually means trials, okay? Under all these trials that you're going through. And he says, so much so that I use you, I, I use you as, a, as an example. I Go to all the other churches and say, look at Thessalonica. Look at Thessalonica. Look what they're going through. Be encouraged, dear brothers. Look at what God is doing through the Thessalonians. And so it is their perseverance and faith that was being commended. Now, here's the question that probably we need to stop and ask ourselves at this point. Is our faith in the Lord growing? Come on. Now, be honest. As you're sitting out there and you're looking at me. Can you say with all honesty that your faith is growing? Are you having more faith in Christ consistently? Are, do you have more faith in God extensively to more and more areas of your life? Is our love for one another increasing or decreasing? Why? We need to ask ourselves. Is it because we're too self-centered or prideful? And so, therefore, we don't have anything left over to love other people with? Is that what the problem is? Don't know. But we need to ask ourselves that. Lastly, have we given up too fast and too soon? Whatever happened to perseverance? I thought to myself as I was preaching this in the first service that that would make a great title for a message. (laughs) What happened to perseverance? You see, what happens is that in our society, right? Would you agree? That we have become the instant society. We don't have much patience. We don't have much perseverance anymore, do we? We don't stick to things that take a long time to do. We want it now. We want it fast. We want it hot. And we want it cheap. That's our motto, right? And so what happens is there's no room for perseverance. And so patience and perseverance are going out the door. But are we growing in that? area as well we keep progressing and we uh when the uh, going gets tough we keep progressing in the areas of faith love and perseverance okay those are the three now luke paul doesn't stop here he moves on and so paul tried to encourage them and then he goes about and he gives them some exhortation he's going to give them some teaching here about uh, uh what happens when the going gets tough the tough keep persevering verses 5 to 10 5 to 10 when it comes to facing persecutions and pressures 
how one sees and understands them can make all the difference in the world. Would you agree? How we perceive them, how we receive them has a lot to do with how we are going to face these trials and tribulations that come into our life. And so Paul really tricks us in some way. He comes at this in a way that is totally unexpected. I mean, you would expect Paul to say something like, oh, hang in there, you know, it's only a little while longer and all this kind of stuff. But what does Paul say? Look at verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Whoa. Well, that's an odd approach, but that's what he does. You see, Paul goes through from verses 5 to 10, and he alternates his message between a message to those who are persecuted and afflicted and those who are the persecutors and the afflictors. Now, afflictor is not in the dictionary. I had to add it to my dictionary on my computer to make it work, okay? So, Paul's going to alternate his message. He's going to say, hey, for you who are persecuted and afflicted, God has something to say. Then he says, to you who are the persecutors and the afflictors, God has a word for you too. And so that's how he alternates this back and forth. So we have to be wise and we have to be sharp to see who he's talking to at any given time. So in verse 5, he's talking to the persecuted and afflicted. And he says, so you will be worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, he started off by saying, this is a way of seeing that God is just. That God is just. All of these persecutions and trials, you will see how right and how good God is. God is just because the persecution and trials have a divine purpose. Really? Honestly, they do. When God allows these things to happen in our life, it is for a good purpose. They are a sign that he cares for us and that he is with us. God uses the persecutions and sufferings as a way of proving our salvation is genuine, is genuine because we are willing to suffer on account of God and his kingdom. The similar thought is given by Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Listen very carefully. He was also talking to Christians that were being persecuted and under heavy pressure. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why? So that the proof of your faith be more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he says there's a divine purpose from all this. What's the purpose? To prove, to be a living proof that your faith is genuine. That faith in Jesus Christ is not something that is just an idea, but it is a reality. Now, We must be careful here because we can't take this statement to be saying that we can earn heaven by suffering. All right? 
Because that would be the natural conclusion. A person says, oh, if I'm going to get on God's good side, I, 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 I need to suffer, okay? And I'm going to eventually get to heaven because I suffered. But we can't say that because that's not the way to heaven. That's not the way to God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Listen to this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Suffering is a work. Can't do it. That's not going to get you to heaven. You can't earn your way to heaven by suffering. But rather, to see that these things that happen to us are really there to help prove that our faith is genuine. That's what he means when he says, so that we be worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, when we endure persecution and trial, God's grace is in our lives. This very same grace that allows us to accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior by faith. So therefore, the testings and trials expose and sharpen the focus on what is already there. Okay? What is already there? Now, what is there? It says that we will, the persecuted and afflicted will be, have a reward for them someday. In Matthew chapter 5, we have this promise that is given to us. Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 10. It says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what Paul tells us is that these persecutions and trials that we're going through have a divine purpose. They are trying to prove out our faith. And if we're going to hang in there, we got to understand that at the end of, the, of this journey on earth, that we have a reward waiting for us. So the word... The good, the news to the persecuted and the afflicted is all good, is all good. Now, when you get to verse 6, Paul, God, through the Apostle Paul, addresses the persecutors and the afflictors, okay? He says this in verse 6. Go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. For after all, it is only just... For God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. God will surely repay those who are inflicting suffering and pain on, on the innocent. Now, I have to stop here because some people are sitting out there and they're saying, No, no, wait, I've heard this before. And I'm disturbed because it always seems like God never repays the evil. He never, you know, it seems like the evil went out. The evil prosper. Okay, what is happening here? Well, let me answer that with a story. And so the story goes something like this. There were two farmers, two farmers. One farmer is a believer, firm believer in God. The other farmer is an outright atheist. He hates God and he hates people who believe in God. All right, got the picture? Two, two farmers, all right? So, the guy who is an atheist and who hates God, he farms and he has a bumper crop. He has a bountiful crop. 
His fields are just filled with all kinds of things that he's going to be able to sell at the marketplace. He is just, he's hit the gold mine, so to speak. The believer, oh, something bad happened. His crop failed. He has nothing to show for all his hard work. The atheist sees this. He says, oh, this is going to be good. So the atheist goes over to the believer and he says to him, I thought you said that it pays to believe in God. Now, how would you answer that guy? This is what the believing farmer said to the atheist farmer. He says, it does. It's just that God doesn't always pay just in September. You see, God has his own timetable that he works by. And this is something that has always baffled us. Think for a minute. Think for a minute. How many of you can think of somebody right now who has hurt you in some way? And they did something very evil. And you would say, God, you are a just God. Judge this person. Get them. You just said that you will afflict those who afflict others. Go get them, God. In fact, if you were to do it right now, it would be most welcome. Okay? You have some kind of thought like that in your mind. Okay? But see, God comes back to you and says, I will. Be patient. I will. It'll come. It'll come. And we'll see this happen as we go on a little further. So, he's talked to those who are persecuted and afflicted, and he talks to those who are persecutors and afflictors. Then in verse 7, the first part, he goes back to the persecuted and afflicted. And what does he say to them? He says this in verse 7. He says, And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. He says, look, I'm going to take care of the bad guys, but I'm also going to give you rest and relaxation. I'm going to give you a break from what's going to happen. I'm watching out for you. I'm watching out for you, he says. Don't give up. I'm going to watch out for you. He says that in verse 7. Then he goes to the next part of verse 7, and it's as if the Lord has something to say to the whole world at large. And what does he say to the world at large? He says this in verse 7, the latter, the second half. He says, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now, make no mistake, that phrase, that wording always refers to the judgment of God. Okay, flaming fire, so on and so forth. And he says in verse 8, he continues on. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And then he says, verse 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So what is happening here? First, Paul was addressing the persecuted and the afflicted. Then he turned to the persecutors and the afflictors. And then now he turns to the whole world and he says to them, he says, watch out, world. Look out. Look at what's coming at you. This is what's going to happen. God's going to judge two groups of people found in verse 8. Those who do not know God. 
These probably are the ones who are in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. This is the group that had natural revelation, but maybe for whatever reason it wasn't enough, and they do not know God personally. Then, there are those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. This is a tougher group. This one is the group that willfully rejects God. Willfully rejects God. Now, this group is described for us in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So this person has every chance to accept Christ. He understands the gospel. He understands what God did for, what Christ did for him on the cross by dying for his sins and so on and so forth. But he says, I don't want him. I don't want God in my life. And this punishment is going to be much more severe. How severe? Because if you go on and you read back in Second Thessalonians, it says this. He says, uh, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, these and, and those who dis, uh, do not obey the gospel, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. What's eternal destruction? Eternal means forever. Okay? This is not a one-off deal. This is not a, a, a shot in the, in, in, you know, just one point on your calendar. This is going to go on every day of your whole calendar for the rest of eternity, he says. And then it says destruction. The word destruction there is not annihilation. It's not annihilation. It doesn't mean it's over, gone, fini, over. Don't have to worry about it anymore. This is one that's going to keep on going, Destri- being, destruct- uh, being destroyed, uh, a slow death, as it were. just keeps on going, just keeps on going. If I had my choice, if at the end of this, my life here on earth, I would rather be annihilated than destroyed. Why? Because it's over. It's done with. But because it's ongoing, there will be conscious, ongoing suffering. And that's their penalty for their rejection of Christ. But then it goes on to also say, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Oh, if ongoing destruction wasn't enough, now I'm going to be separated from God and his power totally. There's no hope. There's no way anything good is going to happen because I will be totally separated from God, it says. And so these two things happen. When will this happen? Well, no date, time is given to us. But in verse 10, we do know what will happen. While the time is uncertain, we do know that we are given a glimpse of what will happen when this judgment comes. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. And so what's going to happen is that when Christ returns, it will be a day of judgment for the lost and a day of glory and marveling for the believers. It will be a day when Christ will be glorified in his saints. In other words, his glory will be mirrored in the lives of the saints, of those who believe in Christ. And so... What's the application here? Well, it's obvious. It's obvious. Who are you? Are you one who does not know God? Hey, there's plenty of ways to find out more about this God. The other thing is, are you one who willfully disobeys God? 
and will not come to him. If so, you are playing with fire. You are playing with fire. And eventually, it's going to end badly for you. And so this is the, this is the application for us today. Believers can persevere because they know that God is ultimately just by the way he uses suffering in our lives for our good and by the way he justly repays those who persecute, afflict, and reject him. So, man, Paul is setting down some pretty hard stuff, but it's stuff that we need to know. But then he finishes off. So he started by saying... When the, uh, when the going gets tough, the tough keep progressing. They keep growing in their faith. They keep persevering, knowing God is in control and just and more than that. They are going to find out that when the going gets tough, the tough keep praying. The tough keep praying. Look at verses 11 and 12. In verses 11 and 12, you have two requests and you have two results. Two requests, two results. In verse 11, the requests are for uh, constant recurring needs. The, the, the requests that he's going to make are for constant recurring needs. He says, I pray for you always, he said in verse 11. To this end, we also pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. So what are the requests? The first one is this. That we live a life consistent with our calling and destiny. God will count you worthy of your calling. So it's Paul that's saying this. I pray God will enable the brothers and sisters in Christ to continue to be living proof of the gospel. The living proof of real salvation. So that the world will know what you can do through believers as they grow and as they persevere. Wow. Now, are you not struck with the idea, why didn't Paul pray this? I pray that your persecutions would stop, that your trials would be lifted. Now, wouldn't that be a cool prayer? Wouldn't that be one that you'd be up for? Whatever's going on in your life right now? But he doesn't. Paul says, I pray that you will be able to continue be living proof of the legitimacy of your salvation. Live a life consistent with your calling and your destiny. Number two, that we live a life consistent with fulfilling God's plans and purposes for us. That's what he meant when he said, we pray that God by his power will fulfill all your good intentions and faithful deeds. This is found in the New Living Translation. The New Living Translation. We pray that God, by his power, will fulfill all your good intentions and faithful deeds. You know, God puts ideas in our heart, in our minds. He puts various and sundry good works before us to do. And so he wants us to go off and do do them. You can, some of you are already ahead of me because you remember Ephesians Chapter 2, verse 10, after Paul talks about the wonderful salvation we have, look at what he says in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Paul is just continuing on with this. And he says, I have two prayers for you. First one, that you continue to be living proof 
of the legitimacy of salvation. Number two is that you consistently fulfill God's plans and purposes for your life by his power. Wow. Wouldn't those be wonderful prayer requests for us as God's people here at GBC? Wouldn't it really be cool if we could say to God, I'm not praying that the trials and tribulations of my life will be lifted, but I'm praying that when people see me go through those trials, they will see Jesus Christ. They will see the power of God at work. And then I want to, I want to, uh, wouldn't it be cool if we say, uh, we we're going to pray in such a way that the ideas and the, the, the works that God puts in our heart and says, go reach the community for Christ in my power, that we'll be able to do it. Wouldn't that be great? That's a wonderful prayer request. Not the usual prayer request, is it? Not the usual prayer request. Thank you for this food. You know, make my boss like me, uh, you know, so on and so forth. You know, not the usual prayers. Okay. Two results. Verse 12. What are the two results that he hopes to get? Turn back to Second Thessalonians, verse 12. He says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and Lord um, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Simply put, verse 12, Christ is glorified by our lives. Number two, that we are glorified in Christ. Because we are associated with Christ, when he is glorified, we're glorified. Okay? So we get that. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is a big part of everything that we do in our Christian life. God's grace saturates every part of the Christian life. We are saved by grace. We live by grace. And we persevere because of God's grace. All right? And so all of this is possible because of God's grace. We keep praying our lives will continue to count by fulfilling God's plans and purposes with the result that Christ is glorified by our lives and we are glorified in him because we are with him. So what what is it that you can learn and live from what you've heard today? Just four quick things. Number one, pray to God to enlarge your perseverance and faith. Someone nailed me after the first service and said, are you kidding, Pastor? Are you saying to us to pray that God would keep the trials and tribulations in our lives so we can, our faith and perseverance can, um, can expand? Yes, that's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm praying for. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, that is really what we're praying for. Did you ever notice that persecution and faith go hand in hand? They're like inseparable twins. If you're going to persevere, you have to have faith in God. You won't make it otherwise. Okay? If you have faith in God, you will be called upon to persevere because the faith will be tested. There's no way around it. You're going to be tested, and you're going to have to persevere. So the two of them are inseparable. So that's the first prayer. Pray to God, to enlarge your perseverance and faith. Number two, pray God will help you see suffering is for your good and his ultimate glory. Okay? Number three, pray God will enable you to recommit yourself to a lifestyle of fulfilling God's plans and purposes in you and through you. Ah, we're casualties of our own culture. We're casualties of our own culture. What is our culture? 
Our culture says it's all about me. Okay? The unholy trinity, me, myself, and I, you know. That's, that's how we operate. That's how we operate. But Paul says, let's put that all away. Let's put that on. Let's get back to living a life where we put the plans and purposes of God for our lives ahead of all of those. Okay? So those four things. Teach us to pray, O oh Lord. That would be a great prayer. Teach us to keep progressing, persevering, and praying, even when hope seems lost. If there's anything I've learned, even in this first study of prayer, prayer enables the weak to become strong and enables the strong to become stronger. Is that what you want? That's what I want. So wait no longer. Pray. Now, we're running over time just a little bit, but I want to take 60 seconds to do this. If you're comfortable, I'd like you to pray with the person sitting next to you, if you're comfortable. If you're by yourself or if you'd rather pray by yourself, that's fine too. But take the next, well, you have to make it 30 seconds. Take the next 30 seconds to pray. Let's start now. Father in heaven, how we long to pray. But sometimes we just don't know how to pray or what to pray. Father, you've helped us this morning. You've given us a direction to go. We pray, O Lord, that what you have heard us pray is pleasing to you. Help us, dear Lord. Oh, help us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, after a few moments of personal reflection, uh, you're all dismissed. We have two exits here in the front that will help, and then we have the main exit in the back. And Lord willing, we pray that we'll see you next week in God's house. God bless you.